Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Ridiger. He's a physician, a best-selling author, and a popular speaker. We're very lucky to have him today that he's given us his time. Thank you so much. He's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. He's the medical director of McLean Adult Psychiatry and Community Affairs at McLean Hospital. He's a licensed physician, board certified psychiatrist, and really interestingly, which we'll get into, he has a Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. His research uh, is really about remarkable individuals who have recovered from incurable illnesses, and he's been doing this work really for 20 years. He's featured on Oprah Winfrey Show and other very popular shows. He's been nominated for many awards, leadership awards. Today, we're going to be discussing his recent best-selling book called Cured, Strengthen Your Immune System and Heal Your Life. And if anyone's interested in purchasing it, it's on Amazon and many other bookshops in many languages. What an amazing accomplishment, Jeff. Um, thank you for coming on our podcast. It's absolute pleasure to have you. And thank you for writing that incredible book, which I really, really enjoyed reading. Let's, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? You've got such an amazing history and background. Well, uh, this whole thing has been a very personal and professional journey for me. I uh, was a difficult child. <laughs> I was uh, born on a farm in northern Indiana to a very conservative uh, family. Um, it was a violent household, exceptionally violent, actually. Um, and that my dad came out of the Amish tradition, so extremely conservative. Um, and I, so from a young age, I began to struggle with an inability to reconcile the worldviews of what I was being taught at home, where the Bible was thought to be sufficient for all knowledge and worldly knowledge was suspect and even of the devil. At school, of course, we were learning math and science, and reading literature, and and so the feedback at home was, this is, you know, not good stuff to be studying. So I was very conflicted and in pain, and so I grew up, ended up leaving and going to college. College began, became a place to pursue these questions more consciously. I had uh, a spiritual experience that at the death of my fiance and grandfather on the same day that that heightened the need to figure out for myself what was true and not just adopt the beliefs of my family and subculture. That took me into seminary where I studied theology and philosophy of science at a deep level and really wanted to become an atheist at that point, but wasn't able to do so because of uh, these experiences. And then in seminary, having great mentors and teachers, I became convinced that science is imperfect and flawed and uh, difficult in the sense that much of what we call science these days is still Newtonian Cartesian science with, with all of its strengths and weaknesses and uh, certainly uh, looks different through the eyes of quantum physics, but decided that medicine, uh, that science is a great gift. And so I went to medical school. Medical school is a great way to reconcile the, the practical world of um, having skills where you can do something practical that people understand, uh, which is how I grew up on the farm, uh, but still have um, a way of looking into my ideas. And so medicine became a way to reconcile those different parts of myself and a way to bridge the different subcultures I was still in. So med school was a great for me. I uh, hated the first two years uh, with all the bookwork and everything, but I loved the more clinical sciences of the last two years and loved residency and did residency at Harvard and then stayed on faculty where I've been for the last 20 years. It's just an amazing story. Uh, and I highly recommend people get your book to read that background too but you mentioned in that um, little section there about having a spiritual experience um, I think it'd be nice just to tell the audience if you don't mind a little bit about um, I know what it is because I've listened to all your other podcasts mm. 
But do you want to describe what happened then? Because I think this happens to many people where they get this uh, a moment in their life that really can significantly, I like to call it the 10 seconds that can really change your life and the direction mm. of your life. And sometimes we're not even aware that that's happening to us. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about that. It's, it was difficult for me to understand. And I, I still regard it as something that's loaded with so much mystery that I don't understand it. Uh, but uh, when I was a sophomore in college, um, a friend, my best friend, uh, David, had given me a book called The Severe Mercy. Uh, it's a book of letters between Sheldon Van Aken and C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor, uh, and they were writing back and forth uh, about this terrible tragedy that Sheldon had undergone where his beloved wife had fallen ill and died. And uh, C.S. Lewis at one point in the book uh, writes this letter that says, Sheldon, this was a severe mercy for you. It was a terrible thing that happened, but it was also a mercy because it gave you back your authentic self in a way that you didn't have before. And hence the title of the book. So this is a true story. Um, David had read the book, urged me to read it. I read the book and then gave it to my fiance, Jane. She started to read it the morning that we traveled from Chicago to Connecticut for spring break to see her family. We were in a car accident, a terrible car accident in Pennsylvania, northeast corner of the state. Uh, we came over the top of this mountain pass the uh, roads were icy all of a sudden coming over the top of the pass this semi-trailer in front of us jackknifed uh, when he hit a bridge uh, we went into uh, the there was no he it was he was on the bridge and there was no way for us to either stop or avoid him um, and so we I remember saying to the driver, I said, get to the right if you can, because that's because that was the only place where there's a few feet. Well, he tried to do that, but then we hit the ice as well. And when, and so we went into the rear tires of the trailer, the driver and Jane uh, were killed. They were the, uh, I was the only survivor in the front seat. I was sitting on the passenger side, probably the only reason I survived is we were just to the right of the rear wheels enough that I survived, but John and Jane didn't. I took Jane out of the car. I did CPR on her for over an hour and a half. I was just in shock. I, I knew CPR. I'd been orderly in a hospital. The only thing I knew is once you start CPR, you can't stop. And it took us over two hours that night before we were actually in the emergency room because the ambulances couldn't get to us because of the ice. Choppers couldn't get to us. Uh, it was and I was in shock. I was just doing what I knew I had to do. And so, and then un, unrelated to all that, my grandfather died. Um, he's a rancher in Montana. He died unexpectedly that day of a heart attack. These are the two people that were, that in my mind cared about me. And, and after a really violent childhood, I was an angry, confused young kid. So um, that's what happened. Now, the strange thing is, I, so I take this bloodied book out of Jane's hand, which is very much um, kind of very similar to the story of what Jane and I had, uh, this death of uh, the beloved. And then, you know, talk about things that don't make sense. The first uh, car to stop at the scene of the accident, um, of course, everyone, no one could get by, the highway was closed for hours. The first uh, family that stopped turned out to be uh, best family friends of David, my friend who'd given me the book. And this is a family from New Hampshire. You know, you know, this made no sense. Here we are in Pennsylvania, out of the blue on Highway 80. Um, made no sense. Uh, death of my grandfather, all this stuff happening on March 6th. Uh, what was going on here? So in the choice to feel the grief of losing Jane and my grandfather, uh, all the stuff from my past came up and I badly wanted to become an atheist at that point, really badly because religion had been used to justify and rationalize the beating of boys with a two by two, you know, uh, the justification for giving spoiled food and spoiled milk and, and, uh, and, uh, all of this stuff was done in the name of 
God and hell and and all these things. So, so I really want to become an atheist, but these kinds of inscrutable um, occurrences that made no sense to my, you know, twenty-year-old mind, I couldn't shake the uh, the reality that something else must be going on behind all this. And there was a series of other things that happened too. I was uh, paying for college. I was on my own. I still was trying to work two or three jobs after losing Jane and grandpa. And I got to a point, I just didn't have enough money. And then there was, I was sitting in chapel one day and these two checks came in with people from people that didn't even know my situation that just took care of uh, my, it was on the day that I had to uh, have enough money to, it's the last day for uh, the money to be deposited into my account so I could stay in college. Well, the money came through. I didn't ask anybody. People didn't know about my situation. Those kinds of things were indubitable evidence, really, that something must be going on behind all this that seemed benevolent. Uh, and so I ended up going to seminary because of that, frankly. And there's a whole lot of other things that happened. But uh, seminary was a way for me to go deep into these kinds of questions and figure out what the hell is going on here and begin figuring out what what a real faith looks like. That's not the faith that one was given by one's parents. And is the universe friendly? Do we matter? Uh, are human beings good or evil? Um, those were I was driven by these questions, uh, a desperate need to get to the bottom of that. So that's, thank you for sharing that. And I'm really sorry. <laughs> that is a really hard thing to go through when you're 20. And mm. even, but before that, I think you were prepared for a lot of grief, weren't you? That's the mm -hmm. other side of trauma is resilience, which is not nice, but, um, but thank you for sharing that amazing story, Jeff, with mm. the audience. That, 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 explains a lot we we tell this background uh, of your amazing life because i think it informs the context of your book cured because people that are doctors and psychiatrists are afraid to study these phenomena that are what we called on the tail of the bell curve distribution really yes um you call it people call it spontaneous recovery but you talk a lot about in your book how you've come you've come to see that it's not spontaneous recovery there's a lot of things in the background that you probably aren't seeing too. Mm -hmm. So do you want to do, do you want to talk a little bit about what drove you to write this book and why it took so long? Yeah. So so <laughs> I have I've had some issues with trust over the years. I was a skeptic at a lot of levels about many things about can you trust people? How do you know who to trust? Who how do you recognize who not to trust? Uh and all kinds of things. So going through uh, seminary and then going to med school and then residency in psychiatry, I came to a point where I had read hundreds of articles and books by psychologists, by theologians, by physicians, um, by scientists. And there was lots of opinions out there and science can be true up to a point, but not always capture the deeper causes or story or um, uh, satisfactory explanation of what's going on. And so I got to a point where I was tired of a lot of opinions. I didn't really know what to trust anymore. And so when this woman, uh, this oncology nurse with uh, pancreatic cancer from Mass General Hospital in Boston came into my office and wanted help explaining her pending death to her son, um, I did that. And then she took off for a spiritual healing center and began to write and call me saying that she was experiencing this amazing healing. And she hoped that with my background as a um, physician, a psychiatrist and theologian, that I would look into it. And I declined because I didn't really expect that anything was going on there that couldn't be explained by science. So Nikki was very persistent and I owe a great debt to her. Uh, she began to have people call me or write me from around the country and elsewhere saying that they had these uh, amazing recoveries. Did I want to hear their stories and did I want to see their medical files? 
Well, I continued to say no for a while. People began to send me their stories. Sometimes they sent me their medical files. And I began to realize that some of these stories couldn't be explained on the basis of traditional science. And so this all happened in 2002. In 2003, the long story short is I began to look into these stories and began to gather medical evidence for people who recovered from incurable medical illness. And I set up a very strict set of criteria in order to separate the wheat from the chaff because uh, I was very confused initially. There's so many complicating factors, chemotherapy or radiation, or people think they're getting better and they're not. They hope they're getting better, but they're not. Uh, stories that disappear with medical evidence. Oh, and I was the first person that I knew of who uh, has ever looked for the medical evidence for these stories, because these stories do tend to disappear when you look for medical evidence. Um, so that was how this began. And it's turned my entire world upside down, both personally and professionally. It's turned upside down the training I received in medicine, in psychiatry, and even in theology. In what way would you say? Well, the easiest way to say it is that I began to realize that we are taught in Western culture uh, that we uh, that the the material world that you can see and touch is the primary world, and that's the gift of Western culture to the rest of the world. I think because we have elucidated the physical laws of the universe with the help of the Enlightenment and Isaac Newton and and all these great rational uh, enlightenment-based thinkers, that's really important. And it's a step forward for humankind, but that's not the only thing going on out there. Um, the world is far more mysterious than, than can be easily explained by a simple reliance or belief that the material world that we can see and touch is the primary world. Um, the to be exposed to, so so say your question again, and I'll try to come around this because it's a big question. Yes, it is. So, <laughs> so in your book, you discuss the misunderstood notion of spontaneous recovery. Yeah. You've been doing this for 20 years. And what you came to discuss in your book is that people fundamentally change their belief and identity in some cases. And I'm sure we can use that, your beautiful nurse's story to talk about that. So yeah. what you're saying is we have strong evidence to support the importance of the mind-body connection, mm -hmm. and but, but scientists, physicians, and all of us continue to heal symptoms that appear to be people, in my opinion, as well, which is why I went into studying the brain. We seem to be scared of understanding the connection to the underlying trauma. This is a lot yeah. of Gabor Mate's work and... So why yeah. are we afraid as healers or doctors or whoever we are trying to help people? Why do we continue medicating trauma uh, at, rather than getting to the underlying cause, which is, you know, very big and deep? Uh, yes. Well, we could talk around this for a, a long time. I think one way of beginning to talk about this is to just simply say that doctors can't heal or even see what's really going on in their patients' lives if they haven't healed the trauma that they've experienced themselves. And so, you know, that whole dictum about physician heal yourself, um, doctors and healthcare providers are dying of the same diseases that their patients are dying of. They're not any healthier. They suffer from the same, uh, I mean, cardiologists are dying of heart disease, uh, uh, doctors are dying of cancer, uh, lung disease, uh, autoimmune illnesses, um, diabetes. So they don't know how to heal themselves, much less heal others. And they don't know how to examine or get close to the trauma in patients that they're terrified to look at within themselves or that they don't understand. Now, culture has a long history of ignoring trauma because I think it's afraid of it. Um, it's a scary topic, I think, to understand uh, just how much our lives are influenced by physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, or even by the developmental trauma, the drip, drip, drip of not feeling good enough or not feeling worthy or being taught that there's something 
that's not good enough about who we are, um, whether it's on the playground or from uh, very conditional kinds of love that we experience from, from parents sometimes. There's a lot of ways we can talk about this. Um, yes, so interesting. So I think um, this brings us to how you ended up going to, uh, I think the first place was John of God. Was that correct? In Yes. Where you went mm -hmm. to the healing center because it's yep. a great opportunity. Now you're talking about physicians healing their trauma. Let, let's go to the flip side, which is the dichotomist where other people are trying to heal their trauma using all sorts of other ways yeah. as well. Right. So that's, mm -hmm. that would be really interesting conversation too. Yeah. So John of God, um, when I first met him, there's a popular book that circulates around his spiritual healing center uh, that says that 90 or 95% of the people who see him are, are healed. And, and I said, you know, there's people getting healed here and there's medical evidence that these people, some of them are being healed from incurable illnesses, but there's nowhere near to 90 to 95% of people being healed here. And he said, well, that's just for the popular press. Well, you know, you can't say that if it's not true. So there's, so I think one has to realize that, you know, I've seen a, I talked to a lot of spiritual healers at this point, and you can document that genuine healings that make no sense do occur. Um, they don't occur as often as they are purported to occur. There's a lot of sleight of hand around little tricks that are done that um, people still will swear or what caused their healing, but I can assure you that some of this stuff is sleight of hand among some of these healers, not all of them. Um, I have come to realize that whether the person is a healer or a guru or a physician or a psychologist, uh, that power uh, without accountability is dangerous for any human being. And that it's important to understand that uh, spiritual development uh, or degrees are not necessarily correlated with morality or ethics. Um, I think uh, trauma healers often become trauma. They, I mean, healers often become healers because of their own trauma story. And that can leave them vulnerable to abusing people in unique ways there, especially when there's no accountability. And if a whole village uh, has built up an economy around this healer's work with hotels and restaurants and all kinds of things. Um, and there's not a structure of accountability. People are often more than willing to turn their heads and not let themselves know what they know about these uh, softer veiled reports of sexual abuse or, or things like that. So, so John of God, there was, when I was doing this research, uh, back in 2003 and 2004, there was these soft reports of possible sexual abuse or sexual relationships with women. And when you would try to investigate these stories, they would disappear into the mist. And I, I think that probably women didn't feel comfortable coming forward because he was a really powerful person in a very patriarchal country. And things can happen in a country like that. Uh, it's not the rule of law uh, in some parts of... Uh, any country, but especially some countries more than others. And so couldn't get anything to come forward until with the Me Too movement, now hundreds of women have come out saying that uh, this person allegedly abused them. And he then spent time in jail for that. And we could talk a bit more about that if that's desired, but. Uh, well, I just think it's, it's more, it's just more for the audience and many people. Um, to understand and ask questions and I've yeah. come to, and me as someone, you know, really interested in the brain and understanding it and working out that trauma and adverse childhood experiences over many generations generate a lot of mental illness and disorders, you know, whether it's addiction or all these things we're trying to heal, yeah. um, which is really important because we can, because the brain's really plastic. I've come to mm -hmm. see that gurus um, are very dangerous in some sense because no one has that, as you said, the power. So I interviewed this amazing woman on my podcast, Debbie Haskey-Levanthal, who was one of the early people into the Kabbalah Center. 
mm. end up becoming very famous through Madonna and Gwyneth Paltrow in the US. And they started out intentionally good, like you're okay, discussing. Yeah. Yeah. Like many do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Many and do, then, I think. Yes, of course. We all do, don't we? Because mm-hmm. And we can go into this conversation about good and bad. But anyway, uh, the bottom line is that at 18, she realized that she'd been abused and because that was her only understanding was around that center because she went in with her parents because they were traumatized by losing a child. Um, and but anyway, yeah. So as you talked about here, um, Jeff, I think it's really important because all of us are subject to potentially this can happen to any of us, especially if we find someone that make that seems to understand us or give us that love and attention, potentially that we never had this feeling of goodness. Yeah. I think there's something in all of us that doesn't rest until we can experience unconditional love in some form. I think we, when we walk into a room, we're scanning rooms at an perhaps unconscious level for that. We are looking for that and do so unceasingly until we can begin to find a way to experience that within uh, for ourselves. And these healers, I think, start out well-intentioned, but power goes to the head for all of us if it's unopposed or without accountability. I think these healers, again, have their own trauma histories many times. That's what kind of gives them their gifts in some ways. Leonard Cohen says, we all are cracked, and that's how the light gets in. And and healers have a unique gift um, and can really do things, but it can go to their heads, just like any profession, success can go to the heads. We're all just people behind the masks that we wear. It doesn't matter what our job is, humble or not, we're just people behind these masks. And it's easy to forget and it's easy to believe all the stories that are told about you if these amazing things are happening around you because of you. So I, you're so right. I think it's very important to understand that these healings, they come, I mean, what the healer does at best is activate something that's already within us or they help us see that it's there. It's it's not it's not a healing that's imparted from the healer to the to the uh, patient. It's it's really just activating what's within all of us. And that gets it's, us to your book, doesn't it? About spontaneous recovery and and yeah. you, maybe what, do you want to share one of those stories because they're absolutely beautiful. Yeah, let's see. There's so many stories that have just been so inspiring to me. I start off here to talking about Claire uh, because she felt like this kind of universally human uh, person to me. Uh, She believed in science, uh, but decided to not pursue chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery for her pancreatic cancer, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Um, It was diagnosed by biopsy, so we know it was the right diagnosis. Uh, but she was just this really human lady who uh, uh, re- went through so clearly the steps of so many people that I studied. So that's why I started off with her story. She was diagnosed by biopsy in 2008. Uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma is the worst kind of pancreatic cancer you can get. It's universally fatal um, if it's not caught very early and surgically removed. Uh, and usually it's not caught early because you don't know you have it. And by the time it is found, it's uh, become very virulent enough that people die. Uh, chemotherapy and radiation can give you a few more months, but they're not going to change that final uh, decline to death. Uh, Claire, and one reason I also started off the book with her story is because she has a website uh, called livingwithpancreaticcancer.com, where one can go more deeply into her story. And I tried to do that for a number of the stories I told in Cured. I was very limited in terms of the number of stories I could tell. So I had I only could tell a, a very limited number of stories, and one, some of them I wanted to unpack in more detail. Uh, but, you know, 300 pages, you can't really go into the universe of each story that is unfolded in as you get into this. So by having her website that gave people, gives people more opportunity to go more deeply into her story than I can tell in the pages of Cured. Claire decided upon being told that she only had a matter of months to live, 
that she wanted to focus on spending the time she had left um, with people she cared about rather than spending her uh, remaining months in dark doctor's offices sitting with people who died. And she'd had some friends who had been diagnosed with cancer. And it seems like then all these treatments took over their lives, going to the doctor multiple times per week and uh, just took over their lives. And she said, I don't want that. I'm going to die anyway. I know I'm going to die. So I'm just going to spend time with people I love. I'm going to focus on finishing well. I'm going to focus on quality of life. Uh, I'm going to focus on 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 loving well and uh, finishing well. And uh, that's what she did. And she began to change her life a lot. Uh, she focused on forgiving a person who she'd really struggled with, who she felt had been critical of her. Um, she read this book called A Year to Live, which is about basically doing the kinds of things to prepare for death uh, and to really understand what it means to prepare for death. And, and so she worked on that book. She felt that book was really important for her. Well, time began to go by. She was diagnosed by biopsy 2008. She had a CT of the abdomen in 2013 for unrelated reasons. And her doctors were shocked to find out that the cancer was gone. Um, she had continued over that period of time, uh, way past the time that she should have been alive, according to the doctor's prediction. Uh, she continued to feel better and better. And uh, so 2013, uh, they realized she had no cancer. Uh, she then fulfilled her lifelong dream of retiring, uh, moving from Portland to Hawaii, um, and had a very happy retirement there with her uh, daughter and son-in-law, I believe it was. So, Yeah, incredible stories. And your book is full of some of these stories that you probably have even more that you haven't written about. You probably can. Oh write yeah, there's, I, yeah, there's so many stories. It was a very difficult decision yeah. to decide which stories to include and which ones not to include. I think when in your book you talk a lot about how you were expecting to find a few stories as you entered this area, and then all of a sudden it became much more. It was more than just the tale of the distribution that you were starting to uncover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's become the reality is that now I'm so aware of so many stories out there. It's like this invisible, many stories that have no voice. These people have no voice because it's outside of the paradigm of what's thought to be possible. And I don't have time to follow up on all of them. I have yet to give a talk where people don't approach me afterwards and say, you need to speak to this patient or you need to speak to this, my aunt or my cousin or my wife. Um, these stories are buried in our culture and nowhere to go. Uh, they need to be validated. I'm not saying that every one of these stories uh, would fit the criteria that I followed um, simply because my skeptical mind needed hard core medical evidence and it had to be a genuinely incurable illness. And many recoveries are complicated by other factors like chemotherapy or uh, having not been a truly incurable illness or all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But these stories are still there and people still are getting better when we wouldn't expect them to be able to. So the fact that we don't investigate this, the fact that we don't study how people heal is astonishing. As a physician, I was trained to do two things, to make a diagnosis and start a medication, and that's it. And that's helpful, but all that does is help people tread water. It helps them tread water at best. It's treating symptoms and not causes. And until we begin to treat causes, and until we begin to ask questions about what, is it, what helps people heal, we're not going to help people the way they deserve to be treated. So you're a physician and a psychiatrist at, at McLean Hospital. So you see all sorts of, you know, you see the spectrum of things that, that um, are afflicting people. So mm -hmm. um, I didn't have this question, but I'm really curious to know, as you've seen spontaneous recovery and incurable diseases, you must think about this for people with schizophrenia and bipolar. And, mm -hmm. and like we continue to say these are incurable um, people are stuck with them for the rest of their life. You must also be curious to think about how can we change that narrative too. I think about yeah. that every day of my life. Um, 
when we know that a lot of the underlying causes are one genetics, but two also environmental around trauma and you know societal level things. So you must think a lot about how we can change that too for our society. Yes. Now I so I've been at McLean, the oldest psychiatric hospital in the United States, for twenty years. I was also for for fourteen years. I was at uh, Good Samaritan Hospital, which is a large urban medical center here, and I have been uh, chief of behavioral medicine there um, and also uh, was working in another medical hospital prior to that for a few years. So I've spent almost as much time in as a psychiatrist. I've also been uh, in the upper administration and in treatment, uh, treating people at a medical center. So I've seen both sides. And I think it's ridiculous that we have psychiatric hospitals down the road from the medical hospitals. The truth is there's a lot of physical and the mental, there's a lot of mental and the physical. And by pretending that those two worlds can be separated is actually intellectually unsound and extremely unscientific. Um, and I, yes, I have, uh, seen the spontaneous remission of uh, multiple cases of bipolar disorder, of schizophrenia. I did not write about those in Cured so much, even though the same principles apply, but I did tell a few stories about them. I didn't go into them with the same level of depth, but I can tell you now, if you want, some of those stories. I would love that because I think that obviously could be your next book, and I think it's the fundamental mm -hmm. thing that's the in secret in my opinion i don't know i mean i do understand american system uh but also here it's the family secrets it's everything stays mm -hmm. in silence without if it stays in secret so the only way we yeah. start to change thing, things is by having these really important conversations that i think it's the biggest crisis across the world yeah yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. It is the crisis and it's worsened by the pandemic. It used to be that our emergency rooms in Boston were 10% pure psych. Now, during the pandemic and since, it's there's been many times for extended periods that it was 60% psych. That's unprecedented. There are so many people uh, who the isolation, the anxiety, the uncertainty, the unrest in the world uh, has uh, worsened to this issue exponentially. And we have people sitting in the emergency rooms for days and weeks and sometimes more than a month at a time, sometimes adolescents, which is immoral to have an adolescent sitting in the emergency room for over 30 days with no bed to go to uh, and not enough treaters on an outpatient basis. It's devastating. That's incredible. Incredible story. And I think that's not, I think it's universal too. So would you like to share some some of the bright side of the recoveries that you've seen in your work. Yeah. One story uh, is uh, touch, has touched my heart for a long time. There is a, a woman who used to come to our um, hospital. She had been variously diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder uh, had gone. Uh, the teams that had treated her had gone back and forth on that for complicated reasons for a number of years. Uh, in psychiatry, you don't have a lab test that you can take to determine what your diagnosis is. So it's that's why uh, these were not the people I primarily studied because there wasn't lab evidence to prove that we had the right diagnosis. But you know, she had, uh, uh, and I, I think the truth is, uh, the schizoaffective disorder versus bipolar disorder was one level of the diagnosis, but at a deeper level, it was really chronic PTSD from having sexual abuse uh, in her history, having been brutalized uh, by her husband, uh, who was a priest, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, and just a really difficult history. Uh, and especially when religion is involved in that abuse, it can be very difficult if you ex if you externalize and begin to believe that maybe it's God or the universe that's against you. So well, that's uh, very, yeah, because yeah, that, I mean, if you think you're going to hell and you're taught that and you're, you're told that by a, a priest or a minister, that exponentially um, increases the abuse from something of uh, uh, maybe an individual that has a lot of problems who's abusing you to the universe is fundamentally against you and the universe is untrustworthy. So 
So she had struggled with uh, her symptoms for years, suicidal. Uh, the Department of Mental Health would uh, visit her once or twice a day in her apartment just because they were so concerned about her chronic suicidality. In our hospital, while she was an inpatient, she, she said that uh, she found hope again for the first time, and then she left the hospital and went back to her art. Uh, she formerly had uh, been had done a lot of work in art, and going back to her art healed her. She was able to give expression to something at the level of her soul that was fundamentally healing. And, and then she decided she would start a self-help program to help people a peer-to-peer -peer program to help people recover from their mental illness. And so she's a lovely lady. Uh, she, she used to send me newspaper clippings of her talks before the state Senate um, and other newspaper accounts of her work. Um, I have given a number of uh, keynote addresses at these hotel ballrooms that she fills annually. Uh, and she's started this peer-to-peer -peer organization of basically people helping people uh, recover from the mental illness and have the support and the love they need. And it's just a really beautiful story. Um, and it's really about the democratization of medicine. It's not the experts are going to get people better. Doctors don't heal anybody. It's people deciding that they have worth, they have value, and seeing the doctor hasn't can help sometimes, but it doesn't heal you. And if they're going to get better, it's going to be because they stand up and start doing the work on themselves and helping each other. And, you I know, I've learned know. a lot from that. I would love to know what hope she saw inside a hospital. That would be really curious to me to understand. Yeah, and I, it'd be interesting to hear her put that in her own words again. Yeah. And it's been years. I think uh, certainly it was about recovering the idea that maybe there is some faith in the universe or some something, yeah. a reason to have faith that maybe the universe is benevolent, that maybe she does matter. Maybe she's not this defective individual that she thought she was. Um, maybe she does have value. Yeah. Um, there was something around that that began to give her hope again. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because many people, when you have children, you want the best for your kids, but you don't realize with the pressures of living that you just keep repeating what your own parents did without even recognition of it. And the, yeah. fact that, and, and the lack of uh, fundamental societal understanding that this shapes the brain architecture of people we yes. can belief systems or whatever, but these beliefs mm -hmm. are shaping the brain, right? So we end yes. up in, in these tunnels. So to break free of that is actually really hard after 18 as yes. well. Yes, it can be done, but you of do, course, it, 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 is, it, is, it, is, it is basically constructing new neural pathways and it does take, it can be done, but it takes concerted effort exactly. for sure. But imagine if we could teach physicians and people in the situation where people are suffering, how to do that using all of these modalities that people have discovered in a really evidence-based, beautiful way. It would be, I think it would be a game changer. Sure your, would. In your research lab at McLean and Harvard, you, you are starting to gain some traction. You mentioned about this on one of your podcasts, getting some funding to start doing this work. Uh, and to change our understanding, because if we don't start to fix the causes or work on the causes, we're going to keep just focusing on the symptoms. And and well, I guess the thing that comes really striking out of your book and your work is the personalized nature of healing. Yes. And uh, how did you stay persistent? You must have, you must still have a lot of criticisms. Um, I can imagine. Mm. How did you yeah, stay I'm, in it and what keeps you going to make this difference for all of us? Well, I think I think the fact that I think I'm naturally a very curious person and probably was a very challenging child because of that. But I think also I was trying to find my own path into a genuine grounded hope that had medical evidence. Um, again, I needed something that was beyond the opinion of a psychologist or a physician or theologian. I needed, I needed proof. And so my empirical theology was, if 
this person who has medical evidence for a genuine incurable illness, if they were able to find a path to genuine well-being um, and healing, then that's something I can trust. And I want to go deep into that person's life and understand what they did. And then after, I, if you've been interviewing people for 19 years, you begin to realize, wow, these patterns come up over and over and over again. So, and I think I'd also, because I'd studied philosophy of science at such a deep level in seminary, I knew that, that, uh, and this is it's a big topic because quantum physics has been around for 80 years the theologian who was my mentor at princeton was also writing books with physicists and so he was deep into theology and physics and and um and going to the very core of what's true in this world and how do we know that and because quantum physics is not a theory, it's an indubitable fact that's been proven in laboratories over and over thousands of times since quantum physics uh, was first discovered back 1920 or never by Niels Bohr and uh, colleagues. So, so we don't have time to go into the massive uh, depth of all this, but I did begin to understand that uh, the Newtonian Cartesian science that we call science still in conventional culture is able to um, talk about the world and validate the world we see in touch up to some degree, but it can't talk about the things uh, that we also know to be true, like love or um, uh, you know the ineffable things that we all tend to believe and experience as true, but we can't prove as easily or directly. So going deep into those and having a sense for the limits of traditional science and knowing we needed to be able to talk about these other ineffable domains as well. That was, that was certainly driving me. Do you want to say, ask another question so I can go so, further I mean, with this? Yes, because I think this is the, uh, the personalized nature of healing. Because, oh yeah. Because um, that's right. Quantum entanglement. I mean, we, they just won a Nobel prize too. So um, right. Some of this work recently and this whole field is becoming now that they've seen it and can measure it somewhat, it's going to expand right enormously. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and let me just say this, because this reminds me of something I wanted to say. So I had studied science at such a deep level that I also so I was in a very different place when I went into med school, having had a chance to go so deep into analyzing the assumptions that create the science that we use in medicine. I also, so I knew that the traditional Newtonian Cartesian science wasn't the whole story. So I also was very consciously constructing a paradigm that's person-centered that says the, that what's personal is also most universal. If you go deeply enough into what's really personal, with a clear capacity to be objective about it um, and gather medical evidence, then that also has its own route to truth that's complementary to um, say the kinds of studies that pharmaceutical companies do. Um, so, so I was very keenly aware that if you can gather medical evidence and then go deep into a person's life through qualitative uh, methods of inquiry, you can gather truths there that you can't get from a pencil and paper survey that you hand out to people that may capture some things that are true, but they're not deeply true. You know, they're, they might tell you how many times a person uh, has an alcoholic drink uh, in a week, if they're honest, but most people are not fully honest. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds <laughs> of things. Multiply by can, three, they say. Right. Yeah. I mean, our science is a lot more limited than we realize. It's You can get lots of answers, but it doesn't mean they're true. But going deep into a person's life can be a complementary way of beginning to understand uh, these deeper truths. And it is just really true that what's most personal is also most universal. Yes, and so I'd like to just expand a little bit here, if you don't mind, Jeff, because I, I I end up in this realm a lot in terms of discussions because healing does start within and everyone's journey is really different because of this fact that our brain's been built over evolutionary time, which is a really long yes. time. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's millions and millions of years, and we don't just come from humans, you know, we come from right the universe mm -hmm. right back in the day and we still don't even understand if the big bang's an explanation for everything right but the one thing we do know potentially is and you can see this and test this out for yourself is by making a different choice about something you would normally do mm -hmm. for example 
instead of just, you know, wake up in the morning, putting on your clothes, going to work, wake up in the morning, go outside into nature, take a panoramic view, you're, you're changing something about the next steps. And when yes. we think about quantum entanglement or quantum steps that can lead to changes, you know, this is the ineffable that you talk about. Can yes, you- that's right. Yeah, and changing, we, we none of us can make big changes quickly, but we can do small changes that accumulate over time. And it's like a two paths part in the woods. They might look like they're going close to each other for a while, but before you know it, they're miles apart. And I think it's in my own life and watching these lives of others who I've documented, you know, you start off with small changes and before you know it, you're in a whole different universe. And you're right. I mean, we have a person who one of our group therapists teaches here that if you you struggle with alcohol, when you go home from the hospital, then rearrange your room. I mean, begin to break those patterns, uh, rearrange the furniture, uh, paint the rooms, uh, go outside, spend time in nature, do these little things that start to change, uh, that begin to break the habits that we unconsciously have accumulated. That's how things begin. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I, as someone that studied addiction, alcohol addiction for a long time, I think I've come to see now we understand the adverse childhood experiences work and everything mm. that addiction is medication for trauma and stress. Yes. And you can't just treat the alcohol part of it without yes. doing something else to change what's what you're using to handle stress. Yes. It's never about the alcohol or the substance. Usually the alcohol or the substance are medicating a broken heart and the broken heart's there for a reason. And it's something that we are terrified to feel. We might be afraid unconsciously or consciously of becoming crazy if we let ourselves feel or that's going to be unendurable. Finding a way to heal the trauma and face the abyss that's associated with that so that we can heal and, and we have to feel before we can heal I love that term. Yeah, I mean, but the body, the body is the body keeps the score. The body tells the story. If we have the ears to hear, I have become convinced that that the in, in contrast to the my training in medicine and psychology and uh, theology, the truth is the body is not fundamentally who we are. I believe the, I think we are these invisible souls or selves walking around and the body is simply um, the metaphor for something that the deeper self or soul is trying to learn. And boy, I tell you, when you start hearing these stories and when people begin listening to the deeper message that there's, that the body's trying to tell them through the illness, boy, I mean, Gabriel Mate is right. Uh, if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually break down and say no for you. And our hospitals and our clinics are full of people who have not been taught to listen to the messages. Their body is crying out for them to hear. And if you don't know how to say no to taking care of everyone else in your life except for you, your body will eventually say no for you. And, can and I if ask, you don't know, go how, ahead. How, how are you going in terms of integrating your this um, extensive knowledge that you've built up over your career. How are you going at um, integrating this into medical practices? Like what are the steps we need to do to fundamentally shift and combine, walk the line between these two dichotomous sides that shouldn't be dichotomous? You know, we we like black and white, but how do we go about, because you're, you're at the leading edge here. You, you have the greatest chance out of everyone to build and change medical practices. How do we do that? Mm. Like, have you worked out how we can? Well, so I'm in weekly meetings with a group of wonderful people and advisors who are uh, helping me determine whether we should go ahead and and, uh, consider opening a center at Harvard where we we develop a trauma-informed model to treat both medical and psychiatric issues. And just from the very beginning, acknowledge the, the role of trauma uh, and I'm not just talking about physical, mental, or emotional mm-hmm. abuse, but the deep kinds yeah. of developmental trauma. Multi-generational. That, multi-generational, um, yeah, legacy trauma, um, all kinds of things that we um, not might, might not even be aware of the, the secrets in the family or the ways in which uh, our body is under profound stress and we're so used to it, we're not even aware of it. 
Um, I think that's often the case. Uh, so that and and how to do so in a way that no longer participates in the uh, false chasm between mental and physical. Because I'm telling you, if a person comes into the emergency room with a heart attack or a stroke or an autoimmune flare-up or gastroenteritis, uh, we should be asking, so what's been stressful lately? And that's really important for getting an understanding of what's really going on here. I could tell you multiple stories about that, but if we started something along those lines, maybe we could, and, and did so in a way that uh, used professionals as coaches in when needed, but also began to help people help people in a truly democratized fashion, um, well, maybe I, we could do something. If you can do that at Harvard, it will have a powerful, it's just the mirroring effect of the brand. Um, I mean, if you can make, if you can mm -hmm. pull that off, it will have a great impact globally, in my opinion. And, and until we do that, we're going to keep escalating. Mm. I'm yeah, I'm, I have several options facing me right now and I'm trying to decide which is mine to do. You know, we all, I think have something that we're meant to do with our lives and I'm trying to decide what's the exact way to do this that exactly is mine to do and not someone else's, not me trying to do someone else's job. I'm trying to get really crystal clear about that. What, what are you feeling um, right now? That looks, like um, I think it's probably going to be along the lines of what we're talking about. Um, and whether it's a television show um, or um, a starting a center, that's really what it's coming down to is sorting out uh, that and also where to do it. Do it Do it on the East Coast, do it on the West Coast, both. Those are all questions. Like you could uh, be training people to do the centers. Correct. Yes, well. there's, yeah. And, and the advisors I have are just really wise individuals and strategically placed. So it's, I'm hard at work figuring out next steps around all that. Thank you for doing that. I think it's really important. And, and, and we want to let everyone know that it's not just about talking about trauma and adversity. It's, it's the healing journey to go from yeah. speaking, uncovering that. And that's what changed your life and changed mine. And, yeah. And once you became crystal clear and in the moment it feels stressful, but then you can move on from the truth. Can't you? Yes. It's not, it's not to keep talking about it for the rest of your life to make it. No. Better. It's the no. healing journey out of it. You're using the concepts of neuroplasticity that the brain yes. can change and all of these other factors and the body, the mind body connection and finding the modalities that can support that. That's the important concept we're trying to drive here on the podcast as well. Yes, that's absolutely right. We become what we focus on. So you, you want to have a path that helps focus on the dignity and value of who we are. We help alcoholics or someone struggling with alcohol or diabetes most not by focusing on the disease process, but by helping them realize the dignity and value they bring into the world. That's what provides the motivation for then wanting to uh, deal with the uh the addictions that are related to diabetes or to alcohol and then begin to find a path to heal uh, those deeper wounds in the soul so that one doesn't need the addictive behaviors any longer. Yes, you have to go back and remove the blocks to experiencing love. Uh, and that may require going to the past, but you don't want to be sitting in the past. You don't want to sit in the dark cave of the past and just talk about that dark stuff because that's what you end up with. <laughs> so it's just more dark stuff. Exactly. So. <laughs> I want to talk, if you don't mind, um, just quickly, because I know we're coming to the close, Jeff, for time. But on Alcoholics Anonymous, um, started in the 1930s, I have mm -hmm. many people that end up being told that, they are, have to keep saying they're alcoholics, right? Because that's part of the journey out of the 12 steps. Yeah. But I, I fundamentally, as someone that as to build on this conversation, see that that mm. becomes also incorrect labeling. When you're no longer drinking for 10 years, they, yes. they say you can always go back to it, but that means it hasn't been healed, has it? That's right. Because I think that like the fourth pillar of healing is about healing your identity. And the whole point is to not be defined by that identity or to make your identity as someone who used to struggle with alcohol 
to recognize, you want to recognize that's not your primary identity. You're, you might have struggled with alcohol, but you're still a, a mother or a father or a friend or a child or a lawyer or a business person. We're all these other things. We're not just an alcoholic. And the more we heal, the more we realize that we're, we're not alcoholics, even um, that's a smaller and smaller part of our identity and not our whole identity. And the other thing is I'm, I love AA because it's truly the first step of a democratized approach to healthcare. So it's brilliant in many ways, but it's not trauma-informed. And it's kind of from an, an internal family systems view, manager-led. So managers <laughs> tend to uh, burn out and uh, you, you can't white-knuckle it forever. You really have to heal these deeper things. Well, and it's uh, like it also becomes an addiction in of itself. Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not and, anyone's fault. It's, and I agree with you. There's the first steps out of something through the detoxification. There's a whole lot of medical steps that have to take place. You can't just stop taking alcohol. Yeah. You've been drinking a lot. That's a lot. right. So you need yep. detoxification. And and that first step out is always, and they're brilliant at that. But I, then I think that there's the next step, which is the science of understanding healing. Yes. Yes, so, that's right. So, but anyway, thank you um, for writing your book. That would not have been an easy book to come out with, in my opinion, just me understanding the medical system and working mm. in these big prestigious places. Um, I know that there's, I know all of the political forces around this concept of healing um, yes. tends to be fraught with many things. So I, it do, is fraught. Hope, I do hope that, um, also, for people listening, I hope psychedelics don't become the next magic bullet either, which is I agree. happening. Um, mm -hmm. It's frightening to me how that that seems to be the next because we're always looking for the magic bullet, and mm -hmm. it's got its place yep, yep. under guided therapy, like everything does. But I think we've got to be really afraid of that too, because I see a lot of young people just using it, mm -hmm. thinking it's safe, as and well. it's not. It's not safe, yeah. no. <laughs> no, and I, I think you're absolutely right to be aware of the shadow side of this. It, there are absolutely uh, proven cases where people have experienced the healing of uh, trauma and even certain physical illnesses with the use of psychedelics in a guided, supported environment. But again, there's many unlicensed people who are um, uh guiding people in these and there are reports of sexual abuse there's uh, no licensing body you can easily go to when the people that you're uh, seeing in an underground environment um, are unethical with you uh, it's also true that medicine is, even though there's clearly some healing benefit with the psychedelics it's also true that medicine and psychiatry have uh, for decades hyped medications or drugs that uh, in retrospect uh, it turns out that the industries were minimizing the side effects or uh, hyping them or exaggerating the claims. And, and 20 and 30 years later, you can have a much more realistic understanding of the strengths and challenges of, of a medication. So I think we're in a time where there's a lot of uh, hype going on. And even though there's genuine benefit, it's also exaggerated what's being reported. So we want to be sober about this and make sure people are safe. I know there's a lot of glorification of DMT and ayahuasca and, and yeah. the ancient rituals, which are wonderful, that go around bringing people together to make people feel good. But from mm -hmm. a scientific brain perspective, having worked on this in the lab, there's, yes, psychedelics probably don't cause tolerance and addiction in the same way. But what I've seen through research around the subject is people get addicted to the psychedelic experience of being That's right. out of body. And then they want to go mm -hmm. further and more. Mm -hmm. um, and Feels better than healing the trauma. You know, spirituality is maybe about having these ineffable experiences, but it's also chop wood, carry water. If you want to get better, you're going to have to chop wood, carry water. You have to integrate the experience into your real life. And that's that's just hard work. But you're not going to get better without it. And spiritual bypassing, trying to skate over the top of trauma, you can do it, but you'll be more miserable than you ever were. I mean, it's, it's, 
It's it, like it meditation. Be... I don't know if you know Willoughby Britton's work at Brown. I do at Brown. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's not talked about in the papers either, right? We always talk about meditation and mindfulness being the panacea, but we don't talk right. about all the people in recovery from too much meditation either. So, or being sent to psychiatric hospitals because they got so ungrounded that they weren't even living in normal reality anymore. Or, yeah, they had um, out-of-body experiences. Yeah, or people who have psycho and psychedelic trips and couldn't recover from the bad trip and have had real trouble coming out of the psychosis even years later. So there's there's real, we need to look at these things soberly and carefully. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're, you're doing that. Thank you. Thank you mm. for giving us your time today. And I really enjoyed that book. Uh, mm. I really enjoyed Cured. So if, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? Yes. Uh, my website is drjeffreyrediger.com. -E. It's a D-R-J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-E-D-I-G-E-R.com. Um, and uh, the book's available in a lot of different translations um, on Amazon. It's in bookstores. So, so I, I really highly encourage everyone to have a read of it and to look at what you're doing and I really thank you for continuing to mm. keep pushing this message it's an uphill message in my opinion it shouldn't be because it's a solution yes <laughs> it's one of yeah, the greatest solutions we've ever got in our society for really breaking down and changing the direction of our future generations by yes. breaking the silence and yeah I agree that love unconditional love it would help parenting too. future generations sure would parenting. Mm -hmm. so Thank you. It's lovely to have you on our podcast. Thank you for having me, Dr. Bartlett.